Scuttlebutt podcast episode number nine. Scuttlebutt is a Bertha May production sponsored by Portland Media Center. Scuttlebutt was written by Donnie McVean. It is read by Roger Burley, hosted by Leslie McVean. Music, Scuttlebutt, courtesy of the composer Chuck Romanoff. Scuttlebutt is the story of two young men from a tiny community in Casco Bay, Maine, one who went to war during World War II and one who stayed home, and how their dreams of life in the community have changed. When we last left Scuttle, Manly and Sperma had sold the barge and were trying to figure out just how to turn a beautiful yacht into a lobster boat. And now, Scuttlebutt, Podcast episode number nine. See the burly longshoreman showing off his biceps, heaving and a hauling mighty freighters in and out. All of the town folk think he's quite a guy, except he don't lift a finger to help around the house. Scuttlebutt, ain't it a shame? Nobody knows, nobody's to blame. The truth ain't pretty, I think you'll agree. Just don't you tell nobody that you heard it from me. Because the bus and boat schedules were completely dependent on the daily tides and changed accordingly, they caught the early bus 40 minutes later than they had the day before. They still arrived in halftime well before the only bank opened, so they visited with Manley's Uncle Henry and Harvey Longstreet. He served them coffee and got to laughing about Richie and the lemon in his coffee. I don't think he ever drank coffee in his life, but he had heard people ask for lemon for their tea, and so I guess he just got confused. Guess you'd have to say he drank it like a man. Manley filled him in on their plans. We're seriously thinking about trying to buy the boat that Sam Sanal just got built. We're trying to try anyways. Would it be all right if we used your name as a reference, Uncle Henry? Henry sat down at the table and said, Gosh, you can, Manly, but I could have swore that Sam told me he was building a yacht. Well, it is a yacht, but she is the same as a lobster boat, only fancier. And Sam got stuck with her. The man that was buying her went broke, and we are saw in need of a lobster boat. Sperma stopped talking. By the way, Harvey and I went out for a ride in our new yacht yesterday. She's a pretty slick vessel. Handles great. So great, in fact, I let Harvey bring her back to the dock. Trouble with that, I don't think he'll ever let me drive again. He handled her better than I could. How did Sam end up in Scuttle, Uncle Henry, do you know? Way I remember, he was on his brother's fishing boat and was violently seasick for several days. I had heard that his brother got so worried about him that he put into the nearest port, which just happened to be ours. I don't think he's ever left since. He's got the smartest pair of hands God ever put to this earth and a brain to go with him. Samson Al turned out to be just what Scuttle needed. He can fix anything. His brother, I think it's Manuel, put him in care of Widow Snow and his three nice-looking daughters. The tell was that all three girls fell for him, and he married the middle one, named Edna. 
Despite plenty of suitors, neither of the other sisters ever married. And that's about all I ever knew about Sam. But Sperma knew more. When I was helping Sam build the boat, he was driving clinch nails, and I was in the build clinching them off. He'd get to talking about when he was a young boy. He was the only one in the family born in this country. Because of that, he always thought the rest of the family treated him like he was special, and he did not want to be special. He graduated from Catholic high school down to Gloucester, top of his class. Seemed like he couldn't help but being special. Anyway, the family was planning on his going to college, but he wasn't. He decided to be a fisherman like his father and brothers. All kinds of people tried to get him to change his mind, even a big shot bishop or something like that out of Boston, and he still wouldn't change his mind. When he finally went fishing, he said he thought he was going to die for sure. He said he hasn't hardly dared to go, even go out on sea trials on his new built boat since. There was a lot more, I'm sure. He talked most of a week. It was a wasted trip to the bank. The manager told them that the bank had too many bad experiences with fishermen, and a unanimous vote by the board stated that the half-down family bank would no longer make any loans for commercial fishing boats. The bank manager said that he was sorry, but that was the bank policy and he had no alternative. On the ferry ride home, the boys were quite subdued until Sperma discovered his cousin Rain and two other girls on deck. When he mentioned that Manley was below, two of the girls took off, and he was left with a girl named Gardenia. While she was spouting off, he began to wonder if he was slipping. The girls were parked on each side of Manley. The new one was John Morgenthau's granddaughter, Avis, who couldn't seem to be able to find enough ways to tell Manley how much she'd missed him. At the time, Rain was trying to tell him how she and Avis met up with her at the railroad station with, in Portland. The two girls, getting little response from Manley, soon went back up on deck and to Sperma. When they reached the dock, the boys each went his own way. Manley was headed to Falkingham's, Sperma, of course, with the girls. Since the ignition key was not in her grandfather's Jeep, Avis figured it must be at the store. So Sperma, surrounded by the three girls, each vying for the inside position, went to the store. But the key was not there, and Sperma told the girls he had a skeleton key that usually worked. After a few minutes of trying different connections with the length of wire that he called a skeleton key, he did get the engine started and they took off down the point. With a light knock and no response, Manley stepped into the kitchen to find he wasn't alone. There was a bare back bent over the kitchen sink. Manley figured that someone was washing their hair, so he quickly retreated. But as he silently backed away, the person at the sink turned his way slightly and blindly reached for the nearby towel. Manley's face immediately flamed as he silently closed the kitchen door. He went around the house and slowly headed for the beach. Down there, he could see Lester with another man that had to be the twin's father, Gordon. So that bare-to-the-waist person had to have been Joy. Having never glimpsed a bare female breast, the small size of this one surprised him. The magazines that found their way onto the ship 
showed only girls with large breasts. Thinking about it, he sensed that the small pointy breast most intrigued him, but he didn't like the feeling that he had sneaked in on her. He walked down to the beach, hoping that his peeping Tom act went away and that no one had noticed. Lester was talkative and told Manley that the boy who threw the firecrackers onto the hood should be a doctor. He said he didn't have any memory of anything until he heard Joy and him talking about the doctor. That was when he realized he was back in the land of the living. His only recollection of Okinawa was abandoning the burning LCI and running for the beach. He couldn't remember if he reached the dry beach. He said more than once that he was some glad to be home. They all went up to the house where Joy had a new pot of coffee parking, perking on the stove. Her wet hair was combed. Did the fish come in a night after the pocket got pissed dry, Gordon? Manley inquired. Nah, nice bunch of fish come pat way in the cove and stayed right there till daylight, but refused my invitation to come all the way. I, that is we, Joy and I, took up the running twine, salted it heavy. Wouldn't you know, that night the cove was plumb plugged. There was even fish up on the beach, and I couldn't get the damned engine started. Probably it wasn't all bad, though. Every sardine rig in Maine had big sets, and the market, weak as she was, would not hold a dollar price. Dan, is the fish business ever any different? Lester asked. If you can catch them, seems as though there are always too many, and that drives the price right into the ground. Lester acted as if he wanted to talk, and everyone at the table wanted him to. Before I enlisted in the Marines, the price was 60 cents, wasn't it, Dad? To get up to a dollar, something must have changed. Guess so, but I don't know what, Lester. Joy then spoke up. I read somewhere that they were sending canned sardines to starving people in Europe. Think that could make the difference? I bet that could indeed make a huge difference, spoke up Manley, happy to show Joy he was standing with her. She asked Manley for a lift to the store, and he knew if she'd asked for the moon, he'd try to get it. While on the way, she said, it just doesn't seem possible that yesterday we didn't have an idea in the world if Lester would ever come back to us, and now I'd be like crying or flying or I don't know what, I'm so happy. Well, I am too, Joy, and if I didn't always lack or act like a horse's backside when I'm around you, I would tell you what it is like to be near you. Well, would it help if I turned back too and closed my eyes, do you think? It can't hurt. Let's try it, okay? Joy had a lovely smile as she twisted around in her seat. Manly got to say, I wish you'd be my girlfriend, Joy, if you'd like to. Well, that would be very nice, Manly, but I will have to stay, will I have to stay back too all the time? With an even bigger smile that he couldn't see. Joy, I truly love to look at you front too, but we don't know if there will ever be a sensible word coming out of me. She tried to answer, but couldn't stop giggling. Entering the store, Joy took Manley's hand and held it for a few seconds after they got inside. Mr. Lister told him his mother would call to tell him he'd gotten a telegram from the Navy. 
He thanked the storekeeper and told him that he would go home soon. While Joy did her shopping, Manley answered a barrage of Mr. Lister's innocent questions. He was relieved when Joy came to the counter with her purchases in a homemade clam hot. So he drove his new girlfriend to her home, and he could not help wondering what the Navy wanted now. After helping carry the groceries in, he went on home. The telegram stated, Captain's mast scheduled for July 16, 1st Naval District, Boston, Massachusetts. Well, that was about the same time as leave was up anyway, and Boston was a heck of a lot closer than San Diego. Truly would have loved asked if it was bad news, but knew that Manley would have told her if he wanted her to know something. Since he came home, she knew something was bothering him. Somehow mothers were given the ability to know what their children were thinking. The more knowledgeable ones even knew that some things were better left unsaid. Where's Dad? You know, Mom? Last I knew, he was building buoys, and then I believe he was going to paint some. He can't be far away. You find him, tell him supper's in a half hour. Okay? Baked, stuffed, cuss. Oh, sounds truly wonderful, Mom, he grinned. That's the little bit of your eye was shining through, Manley. His pretty mother replied with a smile. That's news to me, Ma. I always say I'm mostly Scottish with a bit of Indian. Well, the Indian is a big unknown, but if I do know your great-grandmother Fiona was adopted from Northern Ireland by an American schoolteacher and his wife. She grew up in Boston. Her last name before she was adopted was Gill, and after became Hoare. Can you imagine what that girl must have gone through growing up with that name, especially in Boston? Luckily, she married, got the name Kala. Well, I, never mind, I got to be busy or there'll be no supper. He found Ganley paint-covered and happily slopping bright red paint partway down previously undercoated yellow buoys. Little wonder he can paint five buoys to my one, thought Manley. Mom says bake stuff cusk. You want supper in 25 minutes? How's that sound? Ganley stuck the very red-handled paintbrush in a can of water, covered the paint can, and declared, That sounds like I sure is shooting. Don't figure on being late for supper. They went in the house with Ganley trying to clean his hands on a painty rag. He went directly to the sink and started washing his hands. Gainley Moore, what would you say if I got right in your way when you was hauling traps? Truly was standing with her hands on her hips. I'm sorry, darling, but you do know I get wicked lonesome in the bathroom all by myself, with a big grin. Oh, hurry, okay. Oh, I shouldn't let your sexy gray eyes sway me. That got a big laugh out of both men and even from Truly. Next time I'll put onions in the stuffing, she threatened. Where's Richie? Well, he was sitting in the truck practicing last I knew of him, and I'll bet he's still right there. Will you call him Manley? After supper, Manley invited Richie for a ride up front. Richie was tickled to go, thinking perhaps he would get a chance to drive. 
You want to know something, Manly? My father says even crabs and lobsters don't eat cusk, so why should we? I wonder if he ever tried them. But they were some delicious the way Aunt truly cooked them. I fully agree with you. They were some nice eating, but boy, they are some tough buggers to fillet. Their skin is as tough as leather. I think it would be easier to skin an armadillo. Where are we going, Manley? I don't really know. I expected to find Spammer. He usually has a plan or a scheme for something to do, but he wasn't in his regular spot, so I don't know. Oh, of course I do. So we'll go down to Joy's. I ain't never heard of that place before. Is it one of them pinball machine places? Nah, it's where the prettiest girl in the world lives. Manly against over at his young cousin with a grin. At the Falkinghams, as Manley was introducing Richie, the boy spoke up. Oh, you're right, Manley. The prettiest in the whole world. Joy, I want you to meet my cousin Richie. And don't he sound like he might be moving on on my girl? He comes from down easterways on a small island. I'm happy to meet you, Richie, and I'd like to say you are very perceptive. She said this, though she was blushing profusely. We have company in the parlor. Come on in. She led the way and introduced Rose Adams and Woodrow Eaton to Richie. Sorry, I didn't get your last name, Richie. Well, my last name is Moore, thank you, ma'am. He looked at the schoolteacher and said, I ain't never talked to a schoolteacher before. On our island, there ain't no teacher, just our mothers. Will you go to high school in the mainland, Richie? I'm afraid so, ma'am. You don't want to go to high school, Richie? Rose asked with a soft, sympathetic voice. Oh, the school pat's okay, but I'll have to live on the mainland most of the year amongst them mainlanders. Woodrow made to shake hands with Manley, who hadn't seen the offer. But Richie had, so his hand reached out to grasp the mortified Woodrow's. Pleased to meet you, Mr. Eaton. The people who witnessed the young boy's performance were surely thinking that he may only homeschooled, yet he handled himself as if he were tutored by Emily Post. How's the lobster in Woodrow? Anything happening? Not much, Manly. But we did have another shedder today. They still on one price? Oh, I don't know. We didn't ha make the market. Rose and I ate my shedder. I would have to say it was one of the best flavors I've ever tasted. It beats me why people pay more for hard shell lobsters than the soft shell, and then so much tastier spoke Rose. And tenderer, added Manley. I have a sneaking hunch that they find the hat shell much less goopy, and no question, they do have more meat. It must be discouraging to pay near a dollar for a lobster and crack it open to find hardly any meat in her. By jolly, open a can of sardines and you know what I'll get. Gordon Ham had entered the room and was sticking up for his business. That sardine can will be stuffed cram full. You tell him, Daddy, Joy encouraged her loving father. So did Lester with a pat on his sister's shoulder. Me and Richie are going out looking for northern lights. Would you and Lester want to go? He was actually looking at Joy. 
Thank you, but I can't go tonight. How about you, Lester? Oh, it sounds like fun, but I likewise can't make it tonight. It feels too damn good just to sit here listening to stories. He gave his father a wink. That reminds me, in boot camp, a bunch of us got to talking about where we come from. And when I said that my home was Scuttle, Maine, they asked, how did they come up with a name like that? I knew it was something to do with a ship, but what it was, I don't think I ever know. Woodrow knows the whole history. He researched it in college, Rose volunteered. When the shy man said nothing, he was asked by Lester for the true story. He reluctantly began to speak. It was early in the Revolutionary War when we had no Navy, so they armed private merchant ships with all that they had available for cannons. In most cases, these were mostly very small as far as cannons go. There was one small coastal schooner that ran from Boston and the coast of Maine. She was a small vessel with a six-man crew. Woodrow was now being carried away by the story, and his voice showed it. Captain owned the ship and named it after his wife, Angie Lauren. He was very proud of his schooner and always tried to take good care of her. <laughs> Less so his wife, who <laughs> he only saw infrequently. They were coming back from Boston with a cargo of household goods when they met a British ship coming the other way. There was a fair chance the British would have ignored them. It had already passed them when an impulsive seaman on the Lauren lit off the cannon with a shot that landed about halfway to the other ship. Well, then the gunboat turned around and decided to chase after him. Captain Buck Lauren was familiar with the area and hoped he could lure the heavier gunship onto a ledge. But the British ship was well commanded and avoided all the traps that Captain Buck tried to lure it into. At that point, his efforts had accomplished basically nothing and whatever options he had were fast slipping away. The vast British ship commenced firing its bow gun, and the cannonballs was getting closer. But the worst outcome Captain Lauren could think of was to let his vessel fall into British hands. He decided he had to beach the vessel and went to his cabin to get the ship's papers when a cannonball smashed into the stern of the ship, knocking him out of commission for a while. When the captain come to, he observed his crew launching the lifeboat, and he quickly realized that his ship was slowing down. He soon discovered why. While he was unconscious, the mate had sent two seamen below with axes to stave holes through the hull. The mate figured that was why his captain had gone to retrieve the ship's papers. That, supposedly, is how the Angie M. Lauren got scuttled just east of the point and we become the town of Scuttled. After a glance at his rapt audience, he continued, after 50 or so years of being the town that got sunk, the D was dropped, and we then become Scuttled, just like now. Well, that's quite a story, Uncle. Thank you, Woodrow. Lester enjoyed the explanation. The moment of silence is broken by Manley. Well, what do you say, Richie? Shall we hitch up and head her east? I'm getting ready to climb under the kelp. You can't leave now, Manley. 
Fine, it's just ready to come out of the oven. Joy spoke with a down east twang. Joy made coffee with only Richie turning it down and asking for milk. I'm afraid it's not very cold, Richie. Is that all right? It was easy to tell that Joy enjoyed this young boy. He quickly ate his pie and proclaimed it lovely. A few minutes went by and he added, I do think rhubarb pie is my best favorite. Joy spoke up. I'm sorry, Richie, but that one pie was all we made. Rose came to his rescue. Here, Richie, you may have half of mine. The other half I already promised to Woodrow. Eat up, Richie. Then you and I better see if we can round up sperma. They found sperma without much trouble. And not only sperma, but of course a jeep full of girls who came along with him. Not that either Richie or Manly cared. Getting a message through the female voices was a workout, but they eventually decided to meet up with Sam the next day. On the way home, Richie said, I'd like to ask you something, Manly. Why does Uncle Henry always have that crazy guy with him? Lest it's his father. Well, no. They're not related, but let me tell you, there's no way Harvey is crazy. What is wrong with him is that in a long, drawn-out breath and his brain got damaged. But you get to know him better, you'll realize in some ways Harvey is brilliant. It's hard to believe, but he is pad owner of the ferry company, and he does a great job with it. It appears that Dr. Black feels that maybe he didn't do a good job in the birthing, and that's why Henry is like he is. Well, in any event, the good doctor almost mothers him. Sometimes he scares me, Richie was very sincere. Everyone says that till they get to know him. The truth of it is, he loves people and tries to show it. The next morning, their sperma was ready to meet the day. Manly couldn't figure out how he could be tomcatting half the night and still be so upbeat the next morning. He said that the milkman was the only one he'd seen, and since he knew what sperma's destination was, there was no point in him stopping. The boys found Sam hard at work building punts and couldn't help noticing that several were ready for the water. He told them he was going to charge the wicked price $55 with six-foot oars and brass oarlocks included in the deal. Sperman was ready to talk business. Sam, we're going to try to buy your boat. Trouble is the half-down bank don't make loans for fishing boats. Well, that's what someone told me. No, sir. Sam was trying to be sympathetic. As we told you, we have $3,369. That could be a good down payment. This from Manley. How much will she cost, Sam? Have you figured her out? Sperma was anything but diplomatic. He usually got right to the subject. We take from out the boat the engine, which is new, bought by Mr. Stewart, and should give him money, okay? Most of the yacht hardware is 50 or 40, maybe percent back, which is not a lot of good to think about right now. Sam, we will need a price. So when we try to borrow, we will know how much to borrow. Sam Sperma struck again. Sam looked embarrassed. Well, Edna will know how much we need to ask for you. Okay, if we come back tomorrow, Sounds fine as kind, Manly. 
They were driving away, and Manley suggested they try to come up with something for spindles for their new treasure trove of the black things. I already got that covered. Remember where we used to get the ash for bows and arrows? Well, no, not for arrows. That ash was too big for arrows. But I'll bet it'll be perfect for spindles. Why don't we go try to get some? Sperma shared his thoughts out loud. There's a hacksaw on the truck that'll be good enough to get a sample. Checking the area where the ash trees grew, both were amazed to see how far they had spread in the few years since they had last been there. Whose land is this, you know, Spam? Wasn't this project of what was called Chase's Orchard? Dan, if I know Sperm, they're all gone now anyways, but I think some mainlander bought the farmhouse and you know how they are. Probably heading on back here. They may come along and catch us. Sperma spoke, almost whispering. Let's go and talk to these people. See what they say about us taking some of these little trays. <laughs> They're mainlanders. You ought to know what they'll say. I'll ask them, Sperm. You just be ready to run for it. A lady answered their knock and informed them that her husband was out back, sitting in the sun, and she thought he was awake. She introduced herself as Josephina Morelli. She said she knew who Sperma was, because someone had pointed him out and that she was glad to meet Manly, Truly's only offspring. She said she had met Truly when she picked up lobsters, and what a sweet lady his mother was. She escorted them outside and told her husband, who they were. Oh, hi, fellas. Haul up a step and sit down. They tell me, then tell me what I can do for you. That is, if it's a doable by a one-legged man. Well, me and my buddy are trying to get in the lobster catching business, and one thing we need is boys. We remembered an area where we used to get little ash trees to make bows like the Indians used. We make, to make a very short story, a good deal longer, we just looked and found out there's more of these ash trees than ever. We have no money, so we can't offer to buy them, but maybe you can come up with some idea. An out of the ordinary spiel from Manley. How does this sound, boys? Once you get going and clear, if we are still on this earth, you can give us five lobsters. The next year, four. Then three. After zero, we start buying them. Do we have a deal? Well, <laughs> yes, sir. They both jumped off the steps and shook his hand. They cut a few young trees and went back to their buoy pile to try out the ash tree spindles. They found out quickly that their black things were very unforgiving. If the ash spindle was even a whisker larger than the holes, there was no way it could be driven in. They peeled some of the larger spindles, and a couple of those started to work. Now all we got to worry about is how to keep them on the spindle, said Manley. I kind of figured a six-penny nail top and bottom could do it. Oh, you could put a nail in for the bottom, but it would be nigh on impossible to pound a nail anywhere near the top. Well, how's this sound? A strip of leather around the spindle nailed at the end and three-quarters round. That's where all the force to come off the spindle is anyhow. Manley looked at his partner with admiration. Great idea, Spam. I think you came up with a good one this time. 
let's try a... Failing to find any leather, <laughs> they gave up for the day. You going home, Spam? Nah, I think I'll hang around here for a while. Manley got home to an empty house with a note from Truly that she and his father had walked over to Morgenthau's. Richie wanted to paint so he could be found in the workshop or cellar. They should be home to get supper on. He went out and asked Richie if he would like to go for a ride. No thanks, Manley. I'm pretty busy here. Well, it's a shame you are so busy, Richie. I was going to ask you to drive to the point. Oh, now that I think of all the wet paint, maybe it'll be better to let them dry. I guess I'll just take care of the stuff. Won't be but a minute. Now, Richie, if you're going to drive on a real road, I suspect, for the first time, so we're going to test you a bit. Raise your right hand. Hmm, that's good. When the road you were driving on is crossed by another road, what do you do? Well, I slow down and look both ways, don't I, Manley? Yes, I sure hope you do. Final question, which side of the road do you always drive on, even if your car is the only one in sight? Is that a trick question, Manley? No, it's for real, Richie, and if you answer properly, away we'll go. I will always drive on the right side, even if it is bumpier or ice-covered. With a hearty laugh, Manley announced the winner. Richie Moore is always going to be a careful driver. Richie did drive all the way to Morgenthau's and saw just the jeep that passed them like they were dragging their anchor. Manley thought he saw a sperm in front and a girl driving. They met gainly and truly just as they came out of the driveway. Your car, madam, said Manley as he and his cousin climbed from the old truck. Just don't you tell just nobody that you heard it from me. Just don't you tell nobody that you heard it from me. The burly longshoreman showing off his biceps Even and a hauling mighty freighters in and out All of the town folk think he's quite a guy Except he don't lift a finger to help around the house Scuttlebutt! Ain't it a shame? Nobody knows, nobody's to blame The truth ain't pretty, I think you'd agree Just don't you tell nobody that you heard it from me See the dandy yachtsman posing at the wheel He's the picture of a regular marina buccaneer But he doesn't know his rudder from his keel It's a jolly good job he doesn't ever leave the pier Scuttlebutt! Ain't it a shame? Nobody knows, nobody's to blame The truth ain't pretty, I think you'll agree Just don't you tell nobody that you heard it from me Yonder is a fisherman waiting in a brook On a weekend with the fellas feeling wild and free The bold desperado's afraid to take a hook He say, well, one of you people please do this for me Scuttlebutt! Ain't it a shame? Nobody knows, nobody's to blame The truth ain't pretty, I think you'll agree Just don't you tell nobody that you heard it from me
listen to the folks singing, feeling kind of jaunty, singing out the chorus of a ballad sublime. He's a three-chord wonder, thinks he's Belafonte. You know he's gonna bore us with one more time. Scuttlebutt, ain't it a shame? Nobody knows, nobody's to blame. The truth ain't pretty, I think you'll agree. Just don't you tell nobody that you heard it from me. Over and over, day after day, coming and going like ever before. Gossip is so ugly, try as you may, it comes in your window and out of your door. Scuttlebutt, ain't it a shame? Nobody knows, nobody's to blame. The truth ain't pretty, I think you'll agree. Just don't you tell nobody that you heard it from me. Scuttlebutt, ain't it a shame? Nobody knows, nobody's to blame. The truth ain't pretty, I think you'll agree. Just don't you tell nobody that you heard it from me. Just don't you tell nobody that you heard it from me. Just don't you tell nobody that you heard it from me.